Welcome to A Life in Biography. Today I was going to interview Hilary Holiday about her uh, marvelous biography of Adrienne Rich. But she just got her booster and she's not feeling that well. So we've had to reschedule. If she makes a miraculous recovery, I might possibly do this podcast tomorrow with her if she's available. If not, it will be uh, on a date to be determined in January. But you're still going to get a podcast. I'm going to continue my series, intermittent series, on what's new in biography, meaning simply the biographies that have been published in this country in 2021 that have caught my attention. And as with other episodes in this series, I'm dealing with books that I haven't read. That is, I haven't read completely, or maybe I've just read a paragraph or two, but there's something about the book that strikes me, or something that tells me um, something more about the nature of biography. I'm going to focus on just two books. I don't know how long this podcast will be, but it's probably going to be one of my shorter ones. But before I talk about these two books, I want to say something else that I would have said to Hillary and probably will repeat again when we do our podcast together. I like the title of her book, The Power of Adrienne Rich. That's a great title. And it's not kind the kind of title you usually see for biographies. It's the kind of title you get with biographies of military leaders and politicians, for example. Uh, and yet there is power in the pen, to be sure. And Adrienne Rich was not just a great poet, but she was powerful in lots of different ways that Hilary Holiday's biography demonstrates. It reminds me, too, of I once was joking with um, Nigel Hamilton, a very fine biographer of politicians and generals, among other things. And uh, one of his biographies had the title The Mantle of Command. And I said to Nigel, Nigel, for God's sakes, you know, you can do that kind of thing. Um, when I write a literary biography, I can't, I can't title it William Faulkner, Mantle of Command. You've got a kind of built-in advantage on me, Nigel. Oh, well, I soldier on, if you'll pardon the expression. Well, here are two biographies published in 2021. And in a sense, they express the range of biography or what people go to when they want to read a biography. Often you want to read about uh, someone you've known about someone very famous, uh, and you just can't get enough of that person. Uh, oh, there are certain figures that strike me like that. Uh, William Faulkner, Sylvia Plath, Marilyn Monroe. Uh, I've done many biographies like that. But I've also done um, biographies of lesser-known figures, figures whose names probably mean nothing to you. Uh, like my biography of Jill Craigie, who uh, an Englishman or woman of a certain generation would certainly recognize her name um, if they were at all aware of politics and documentary film, for example. And there's a new documentary on Jill Craigie as well uh, that uh, has just been released. Anyway, back to these two books. Maybe I'll start with the biography of an unknown 
And when I say a biography of an unknown, it's certainly not a biography of someone who didn't, who wasn't uh, known in a sense and didn't have accomplishments. But if I mention his name, you probably won't know it. What's his name? Russell Lee. Who was Russell's Lee? Who was Russell Lee? Uh, this is a book published uh, by Livright, um, an imprint, I believe, of W.W. W. Norton. Yes, a division of W.W. W. Norton. By Mary Jane Apple, who is a historian of photography. I don't think she's written other biographies, at least the jacket flap doesn't list any. She has a subtitle for her, Russell Lee, which is A Photographer's Life and Legacy. Who is Russell Lee? And how come you don't know who Russell Lee is? I'm assuming you don't. Maybe you do. Maybe I'm the ignorant one. At any rate, he was a photographer for the Farm Security Administration. He was a contemporary of Walker Evans and Dorothea Lange, for example. But he was not a self-promoter. In fact, he was self-effacing. And it's not too surprising that uh, he uh, has not... He certainly received attention in the history of photography, and there have been shows about him. So he's not an, an obscure figure, to be sure. Uh, but nevertheless, not certainly not known the way that Dorothea Lange or Walker Evans is. And yet, he is also associated with the Depression. He was a prolific photographer. Uh, and um, Jane Apple, Mary Jane Apple, I should say, uh, in her foreword, tells you about how she got to learn about him. It was through a showing of his work in 1988, she mentions. The color FSA, farm security work, had caused a bit of a stir in 1979 when Modern Photography magazine published an article titled The Forgotten Document. Before that, most people only knew of the black and white FSA photographs. The color transparencies housed along with the black and whites of the Library of Congress had gone largely unexamined. Uh, and this is, a, in many ways, an unexamined life. I'm going to now get right to the end of this biography, um, which has a marvelous ending. Uh, it's what I used to do as a kid when I read books. I would go to the last page. I wanted to know where I was headed and how it was going to end up. I want to read you the last two paragraphs of the book. Lee's epic portrait of America is also the photographer's own portrait. He was a man of the Depression, a man of the 1930s, who for over six years practically lived in his car photographing people from all walks of life. I continue this paragraph. In 1941, a shop window in Yakima, Washington, caught his eye. Uh, and what caught his eye, um, he photographed. And that photograph is on the opposite page of the paragraph I'm reading. Uh, this is, a, by the way, a sumptuously produced book. It's a wonderful picture book as well as a biography. She goes on to write, Admit an ad, Amid an ad for an art metal office filing system, that warns, 
Be certain what's going on there. And a call to action helped save the crop during the labor shortage. Lee included his own reflection, layering this image into an elaborate self-portrait, a window and a mirror. It shows a man who presented an easy public image belying a deeper complexity. A talented photographer whose keen eye, innovative approach, and spirit of adventure propelled him to record his time with great depth and breath. Uh, that phrase, belying a deeper complexity, that's what we look for in biography, that deeper complexity. Last paragraph. Russell Lee's FSA, that is Farm Security Administration, OOVRA, is thus an extraordinary gift to us as both a testament to his creative vision in the service of something bigger and as a boundless and enduring visual, visual documentation of the United States in troubled times, a documentation that has remained remarkably relevant to each new generation. There's a kind of um, grandeur in the vision that's presented here in, you know, fairly simple, but direct, uh, even immaculate prose. Again, the book is Russell Lee, A Photographer's Life and Legacy. The other book I want to mention is A Life of Graham Greene, The Unquiet Englishman, by Richard Green, who, by the way, is no uh, relation to, to Graham Green. They're not related. They're not relatives. The Life of Graham Green, the Unquiet Englishman. Often, uh, the reaction people will have to a, a figure who has been written about many times is, oh, not another biography of so-and-so. I think that reaction always, and I've gotten it among my fellow biographers as well, the immediate uh, reaction tells you something. Uh, one of the problems in the reception of biography, uh, people come to it with preconceptions. Um, what is biography? It's a story. Someone says Napoleon, Graham Greene, and you say... Oh, I know that story already. I, I read five or six biographies. I, I'm, I've done that, been there, done that. I don't need another one. And here along comes a biographer, and I've done this with some of my subjects. Marilyn Monroe and Faulkner, for example, and certainly Sylvia Plath and people will undoubtedly, maybe not to my face, might say, oh, for God's sakes, Carl, not another one. So Richard, uh, Richard Green is aware of this, of course. And I would expect, and I would have been upset if he hadn't done what he does do in his introduction, which is talk about the need for a new biography of Graham Greene. Why on earth? Here's what, how he, he puts it. A new biography. There is already a three-volume authorized biography of Graham Greene by Norman Sherry. Now, I reviewed one of the volumes of Norman Sherry's biographer. He was one of those biographers who covered the globe. He just had to be every place that his subject had been 
uh, and often suffering the same illnesses and adventures that his subject uh, had experienced. Uh, Richard Holmes, of course, is another biographer who does, the, who does this kind of thing. I certainly have visited many of the places my subjects have lived in, but I haven't made a point of it. Um, after all, I do believe in the imagination. Uh, it does help uh, to situate yourself in your subject's environs. Um, but in reviewing Norman Sherry's book, I also, I won't go into it uh, in, in what I said in my review, except that he paid a price for that approach to biography. There are some downsides to that. Anyway, there's been an authorized biography of Graham Greene by Norman Sherry. This was produced between 1989 and 2004. And a more prosecuted prosecutorial work by Michael Sheldon, published in 1994, as well as several fragmentary or partial works, Richard Green writes. Both completed biographies occasioned controversy when published, not least because they focused to a remarkable degree on the minutiae of his sexual life, provoking some reviewers to regard parts of the works as prurient and trivial. Broadly speaking, the complaint against these works was that in the midst of all the lurid details, they had lost sight of what mattered in the life of Graham Greene. Now, Richard Greene doesn't exactly associate himself with this criticism, but he's saying, well, here's, you know, here's the territory that's been mapped. And what's wrong with this map? And how, how should the map be changed? So he goes on in his next paragraph. And yet the strengths and flaws of existing biographies may be almost moot. He's not going to spend a lot of time quibbling with these other biographers. He says, the flaws of existing biographies may be almost moot as the body of evidence has grown enormously since those works appeared. It's what, you know, I, uh, I've been taken to saying lately about biography. Incomplete and ever-expanding. The landscape of Green's life has a different outline. In recent years, many thousands of pages of new letters and documents have become available. Among them, letters to his family, friends, publishers, agents, and close associates. In one instance, lost letters to his immediate family were discovered in a hollow book. His daughter, Caroline Bourget, has made available her collection of private letters from her father and participated in extended interviews, allowing a rich new perspective on his family life. I have to stop there and say, that's part of what I was doing with, with my two-volume Faulkner biography. Many Faulkner biographies, but many of them missed certain key essential elements about Faulkner's family life, which I found not only by in, in some interviews, but in archives that other biographers either didn't know about or hadn't thought were that important. So there's the family life that's new. The many letters Green wrote to Father Leopoldo Duran, his confessor and companion on journeys through Spain and Portugal, that gave rise to his entertaining and meditative novel, Monsignor Quixote, have now been deposited in an archive, as have his letters amounting to over a thousand pages <clears throat> to his French agent, Marie Biche and a comparable collection of letters to the publisher Max Reinhardt. Developments 
that allow for a much deeper knowledge of two of his most valued friendships, but also of the very complicated way he earned his living. A memoir by his wartime colleague at MI6, Tom Milne, forces a careful reconsideration of the novelist's relationship with the double agent and defector, Kim Philby. A political memoir by Bernard Diedrich, Green's guide through Haiti and Central America, has by itself transformed our sense of the second half of his career, when his eye turned to politics and human rights in the Southern Hemisphere. Oliver Walston has written a detailed and revealing memoir of his mother Catherine Green's lover in the 1950s and the inspiration for Sarah in the end of the affair. He has made that unpublished work in many private papers available as sources for this biography. Catherine has been written about by several authors, but often speculatively. Her son's memoir corrects and widens the record on many particular points and allows for a more serious reflection on her relationship with Graham Greene. Yvonne Cloda, Greene's last lover, published a memoir that revealed her private life with the novelist over 32 years a period earlier researchers had to approach often through second-hand reports. A large collection of the papers of the novelist friends Gillian Sutro contains, extraordinarily, many transcriptions of private conversations with Green and Cloda, and even surreptitious tape recordings. Boy, talk about a salivating biographer. Surreptitious tape recordings, and Sutro secretly hoped to write a book about them. These include some of Green's private recollections of the women in his life, including the stage designer and children's author Dorothy Glover. Well, those earlier biographies dealt with his sex life. It looks like this one is, too, maybe from a different perspective, but there it is. He goes on, but wait, there's more. Intrepid bibliographers have tracked down hundreds of Green's fugitive publications. A group of expert researchers delving in archives has added greatly to what we know about particular aspects of his career, especially his sojourns in war-torn places. New secondary works have changed our sense of what was going on in the countries Green visited, a notable example being the new historiography of Mexico in the 1930s. Accordingly, it is not only possible, but imperative to bring these sources together and to retell the story of Graham Greene's life and times. You can always hear the biographer say, so there. One more paragraph. The well-worn life and times is actually, he says, the essence of this book. There is no understanding Graham Greene except in the political and cultural contexts of different countries. And in an odd sense, the reverse is also true. We fail to understand something about modern times if we ignore Graham Greene. Here is in a single life, here is a single life on which much of the history of a century is written. Well, indirectly, he's confronting that notion that, you know, biography is too singular. It leaves out too much, the historians say. Oh yeah? The biographer says, well, there are things about that singular life that tell you things you don't know as a historian. So there. Thanks for listening.